Greetings. You are listening to Unsung Stories, Women at Columbia's Computer Music Center, a podcast series and one part of a three-pronged event on the history of composers of marginalized identities, including women composers of color who have worked in electronic and computer music at the CMC and formerly the CPEMC, the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. I'm Amy Simony, and today I am thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Yvette Janine Jackson. Jackson is a composer and sound installation artist focused on bringing attention to historical events and social issues. Her works have recently been featured at Filkingen, Vienna's Museum's Quartier Tone Store Passage, International Festival of Computer Art in Maribor, the Friedman Gallery in New York, Cube at Virginia Tech, Tone Band Fixed Media Festival at Audio Rama, the Spreckles Organ Pavilion in Balboa Park, the San Diego Art Institute, San Francisco International Arts Festival, Stockholm's Culture Natten, the Borealis Festival, and in residency at Electron Music Studio. Recent commissions include Lot's Wife for Ensemble and Electronics by BAMP Center for Arts and Creativity, Remembering 1619 for Violin and Tape, Atlantic Crossing read by the Naples Philharmonic with support from the American Composers Orchestra and cannot be unrung for Carillon and Electronics co-commissioned by the University of Chicago and University of Michigan for Tiffany Ng. Yvette is an assistant professor in creative practice and critical inquiry in the Department of Music and teaches for the theater, dance and media program at Harvard University. Yvette's chapter, Narrative Soundscape Composition, Approaching Jacqueline George, George's Same Son, is in the book, in the new book, Between the Tracks, Musicians on Selected Electronic Music, edited by Miller Puckett and Carrie L. Hagen for the MIT Press. Hi, Yvette. How are you doing? It's great to see you today. Hello, Amy. It's great to be back <laughs> in conversation with you. Excellent. Um, Yvette and I met in 2013 in San Diego, and I've been really grateful to engage her work since then. Um, the first uh, in many such pieces was her staged version of the site-specific and modular Invisible People, a radio opera in September 2013, um, which took place at that time at an outdoor stage in downtown San Diego. And um, an acousmatic version of the radio opera appears on her recent record, Freedom, um, on, the, on, the, on the Friedman um, imprint. So, um, Maybe we can just jump in and get started if that's okay with you. Um, I'd, can you tell us a little bit about your kind of musical life and work prior to coming to Columbia and talk a little bit about what first ignited your interest in working with electronic music? Sure, just a brief summary of my musical life. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles and so I, started taking lessons before I can remember, probably mm-hmm. pre-kindergarten um, at the community center, which is now the R.D. Colburn School of the Arts. Um, but yeah, so I started doing a variety of things, piano, but trumpet was always my passion. My mother always tried to discourage me from playing the trumpet because young ladies don't play the trumpet. So clarinet, violin, back to trumpet. Um, 
But I think partly growing up in LA, I also had an interest in film music. And mm -hmm. so I thought that I would go to eventually go to college somewhere and um, study film music. And by the time I got to Columbia, um, I most of the classes I took the first, probably all semesters were related to composition, mm -hmm. but um, it wasn't until 1994 that I, went up um, town or further uptown um, to the computer music center. And so in that, uh, in like the early nineties, I think you were, you were there at the CPM, CPEMC during its transition to the computer music center. Um, and I'm, curious to hear about what your experience was like there and if maybe you could talk about what kinds of projects you worked on um, while, while working at the center. Absolutely. Um, that time between the transition between the electronic music center to the computer music center mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, still plays um, a pretty important role in how I compose today in 2021. So mm -hmm. some of, um, at the time, Probably my greatest memories are, um, you know, com composition assignments for um, magnetic tape and, you know, getting assignments like make a watery sound, transition to a metallic mm -hmm. sound, and this is the rhythm. And, you know, spending mm -hmm. late evenings with like uh, grease pencil marking tape and razor blades and switching things around. So from that period, really, I, um, what remains with me today, even though I primarily work um, in the digital realm, is this idea of just like splicing things together, like cutting them apart and physically mm -hmm. rearranging them. And so mm -hmm. um, even working in a DAW, that's still my mindset. And actually, you know, even composing for non, um, non well, for, for traditional instruments, I think about the score in that way that I can just kind of rip things apart and move them around. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, can you can you say like a, a little bit more about that aspect of your practice? Yeah, I think it it was the starting point for what I now call um, my destructive editing practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, um, when I'm composing, you know, with a workstation, I like to start a project kind of a, at a pretty rapid pace, but like I'll work on, you know, I'll start something on one machine or in one studio and then do the next part in a different studio or, or in a different machine or a different piece of software so that I can't go and undo things because, you know, with DAWs, you can just undo, undo, undo. So mm -hmm. I like to work in a way that once I do something, it becomes really difficult to undo that, which makes me um, be really focused at the time of composition mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. make decisions in that moment, you know, this voice is distorted. Do I want to, you know, allow it to be distorted or do I want to fix this right now? Um, and so I, th I think that definitely comes from that practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, also from that period, um, you know, before I started working with 
workstations and I use a variety. Well, I guess probably my primary workstation, I use Digital Performer, which I had since Columbia. I mean, not the same version, but I had it since <laughs> Columbia. Um, I think that was like the second version. It was like MIDI only at that point. Um, so yeah, I think the first classes, um, I'm, I'm kind of saying things out of order because I think the very first class I took was MIDI production technique. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, electroacoustic composition. Um, but I also, I mean, from that time, again, my memories are out of order, um, you know, was making compositions with like RTC mix and, you know, doing things a line at a time and mm -hmm. then hearing the results. Um, afterwards. And so um, I, I think in that respect, I, regardless of um, what tools I'm using for composing, I do mm -hmm. some think about it as like programming something and waiting to see what the results will be. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of aesthetic interests you were pursuing at that time in your work? Yeah. Um, recently, I've been sharing with select audiences <laughs> some recordings I did from that period. So I have this old DAT tape um, that I was mm -hmm. trying to transfer parts of pieces a few years ago. But um, one of the pieces that I am most interested in from my early self is called Incubus. And um, so it, it has um, just these beautiful kind of synthesized sci-fi sounds oh. um, that I programmed in RTC Mix. Um, it has samples from the news. Um, oh. mm -hmm. What is that, New York 1010 Winds or something like that. Um, I had uh, oh. samples of Lionel Richie, <laughs> um, uh, Malcolm X um, speech. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And... Um, I can't remember, like, I think those are like the, the basic elements, but I mean, what's interesting to me is that, you know, what, what I'm, the material, sound materials that I'm invested in now are these synthesized sounds, mm -hmm. these bits, um, you know, instead of sampling other musicians, now I've formed, you know, my own ensemble that I can um, tear apart and manipulate and reverse stretch and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that this piece Incubus, I think, um, was a reflection of our response to what it was like, you know, as a young person living in New York, um, pre-gentrification, um, which, I mean, e even just like going up to the computer music center at that time was a little, um, sketchy. Now it's like bright and <laughs> safe looking, but it was a different experience but I mean, I, I think this first piece, like I was interested in capturing um, just kind of the the lived experience of a young person in New York at that time. Um, and so, I mean, things like looking out my window and watching um, young people of color get arrested or stopped for no reason. Or I mean, I watched these things happen outside my window routinely. Um, just walking around the city was a different place at that time. And so um, like, if you listen to this piece, like the sound bites that I choose um, juxtaposed with like Lionel Richie singing Jesus is love, like stretching. 
like all, all of these kind of contradictory things are still kind of elements that I work with today. As you were describing the materials that appear in that piece, I, you know, I thought, I, I again thought back to some of the found sounds that you use in a piece like Invisible People, for example, which has, you know, sermons, speeches, news clips, um, etc. So I, I guess I, yeah, I, I like immediately became curious about resonances between your working method and the questions that you're asking in your work in the early nineties and your, you know, later way of producing radio opera and other acousmatic work um, in the, in the present, basically. Right. I mean, it's pretty safe to say that my current aesthetic was born. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, earlier influences, like I said, include like film and television music, but like the actual doing I wonder if we can also talk a little bit about the work that you did in the in sound design and production after um, after uh, leaving New York, and maybe talk about how you like channeled your electronic music practice, um, you know, toward questions about like sight and audience experience and and narrative drama. Um, um, in, in that work as well. Sure. Um, after Columbia, I went back to LA with my family and I went on an interview. This was like before like people had GPS in the car, um, but I had an interview um, at uh, Hanna-Barbera and I printed out these this weird, like I think it was like GeoCities or however you pronounce it, map. And I got lost and I saw a sign that said to San Francisco or X miles to San Francisco. So I took it as a sign and I missed my interview, but I moved up to San Francisco and started working um, uh, first in boats, um, which um, is, I think, a related, it sounds tangential, but it's related. But um, I started working um, uh, in theater, um, I guess various parts of, you know, parts of the operations of theater. But I think the most um, important parts were um, 
actually soundboard operating more so than sound design because the first show that I ran sound for um, had this massive three-hour multiple-layered um, score by David Molina, which had like too many disc players, two CD players, and I think another source. And it was just, I had, they brought me in um, on the first preview. So like, you know, there's going to be an audience in a few hours. I'd never run sound. And it was just constant, like all of these layers. So it was like a catastrophe the first couple of nights, but, you know, into the run of the show, I began to approach the soundboard as, you know, this instrument and all of my cues just became like this musical um, experience and thinking about the stage manager as the conductor, you know, David, um, you know, David was the composer and I'm the musician um, realizing this. And I think probably around this time, but probably before this time, I, I probably entered San Francisco with this idea about composing theater as opposed to composing for theater. And again, I think that's also evident in those early, you know, works that I did at Columbia. But yeah, so I, I wanted to be able to have my source materials include, you know, voice, you know, that's acting dialogue, um, sound effects, music, um, you know, fully, um, all of these things together. And instead of having a director, um, or in some cases, instead of having a writer, you know, I'm doing all of these elements. Yeah, I, that, I find the distinction that you make between composing theater versus composing for theater to be really, like, really, really compelling. Um, and I don't know, I wonder if you might, like, just say, like, say more about about that. I know you just kind of took us a little bit in that direction. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, my own personal timeline is like the, the details are a little hazy. Um, but I mean, the, the story I've told myself about how mm -hmm. I came to, to this interest of composing theater um, is false because I looked at, at when basically John Cage's The City Wears a Slouch Hat um, I heard it was reissued, um, and I can't remember the year, but um, I mean, uh, when, I, when I looked back at this CD, which I thought had changed my life, I realized that it changed my life at a later point than I thought. It, it was originally um, commissioned for the Columbia Workshop, um, which Urban Reese, or Urban Rice, um, uh, started at CBS as a kind of experiment on radio or experiment to see like the, the potential of radio and um, drama. And so Cage originally proposed this piece that, you know, basically was like nonstop 30, 30 minutes of sound effects and this absurdist text by um, Kenneth Patchen. And, um, you know, at, at the last minute, they're like, we can't do this version. So he, he rewrote it um, for percussion and actors, but the idea of the version that went, that was not aired, um, I guess the, the, the fantasy of, of this project that did not happen um, is a big influence um, on me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess I can even go, <laughs> since 
everyone can hear that my brain does not go in a linear fashion, nor does my music. Um, but maybe the cage is a perfect segue to the influence of radio drama. Great, great. On composition. So, I mean, I probably was first introduced to radio drama um, probably when I was in elementary school. Uh, my mother was an administrator for a public school um, of performing arts in LA. Um, and so, you know, I hang out with all these big kids and big kid clubs. And one of them, um, we were introduced to radio drama. So um, I just was, I think it was probably sorry, wrong number. Um, and by the time I got to Columbia, I still had this interest. And, you know, I would listen with friends like late at night. Um, there's a horrible program, I mean, horrible ethically called Unshackled. Um, that we would listen to, I was going to say religiously, but it was a religious program. No, no pun intended, but <laughs> we would listen whenever it came on. Um, and so between, you know, that program and the classic um, programs from, you know, between the thirties and fifties, um, I, I eventually at, in San Francisco spent, I think a solid, um, I don't know, 10 years of just listening to radio dramas. I mean, I didn't own a television and this was pre-internet when people could no longer use this excuse. I don't have a television, but you know, I mean, so basically from day to night when I was at home, there would be radio drama on and I pretty much still listen to radio drama every day. Um, so I am particularly interested in this idea of um, you know, well, I mean, let's take a show like Lights Out um, with Arch Ogler, where, I mean, it's the imperative is in the title, you know, listen to this with the lights out. And so it's encouraging a, a specific type of listening um, in darkness to kind of heighten, um, you know, your imagination and, and create this spectacle as you're listening to, you know, pretty absurd tales um, you know, aided by sound effects and again, dialogue and music. And um, I, I was, I guess, interested in taking these elements and putting them in a more abstract or presenting them in a more abstract manner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also at some point at this time, I heard, um, I can't even find it anymore, but um, I some somewhere in the early, um, everyone putting everything on the internet um, was listening to all these like German Hirschbill. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably not the correct plural um, <laughs> of that, but but just really, I mean, it had all the elements that I'm talking about, you know, text and dialogue, but it was just like really absurd. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and so, um, I mean, so pretty much everything that I've said, probably in the past couple of minutes, all the things um, mm -hmm. eventually converged into my current practice. Um, it's really, it's really like evocative to think of your like a listening practice, kind of fed on like a decades plus sort of steady diet of radio drama, right? Um, I know you. Like you think a lot about immersion, you write a lot about immersion, and that just strikes me as such a like intensely immersive um, 
like long-term listening practice. Um, so it's, yeah, it's great to hear you kind of spin that out a little bit. Um, I, um, um, let's see, I, I have a, I have a, a, an epigraph here from one of your like earlier pieces of writing that's uh, it's Orson Welles. And the quote reads as follows, a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart. It can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warmed and sometimes you want your spine to tingle. And um, it just makes me curious about what kinds of um, like affects and like experiences you try to stage for, um, for, listeners in the context of this practice and how you have come to some of those, um, those, those approaches? I mean, subject-wise, I've always drawn from, um, I guess, either my life or the life of those around me or mm -hmm. histories embedded within any of the cultures through which I, you know, my identity intersects. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, except for the period in college, which, you know, I would listen to these radio dramas with other people. Mm -hmm. The majority of my radio drama listening has been done as a solitary practice, but I'm interested in composing these radio operas that are listened to communally. Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, shall I take this opportunity to talk about um, what I call radio opera? <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. Yeah, so I've been using the term radio opera to describe my work since 2011. And I use it differently than what a lot of people might think of. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, sometimes people think of, you know, like John Carlo Minotti's um, operas that were commissioned by NBC for radio. Um, and later television. Um, but when I use the term radio, I'm simply um, just alluding to the golden age of radio drama. And when I use the term, term opera, I'm just um, saying that these are large works. Um, they are often episodic, like serial radio drama or, or television, because um, I'm interested. Uh, um, well, there's two reasons. One, I'm interested in arcs within arcs, like you know, kind of dramatic arcs within arcs. But also, um, it kind of relates to what I was saying before about my, um, or maybe it doesn't, but I, I think it kind of re relates to what I was saying previously about um, my approach of composing um, when I, where I use this like destructive approach where I work on, you know, multiple machines or pieces of software or studios while composing a single piece so that it, it makes it difficult to go back and undo. But what it does do is allow me to create this um, catalog of source materials and ideas and um, uh, motives that I can reconfigure. So I like to think of I used to, for a period of time, refer to these works as modular composition. Um, and I use the analogy of those child books where they have the three panels and you can flip different pages so that the story reads differently each time. And that was an idea I had for these compositions, um, I guess for the past 10 years, that for each venue, um, I would 
recompose the pieces using the same elements. Um, and I probably did that maybe for a few, maybe seven, six or seven iterations of Invisible People, a radio opera. Um, but um, yeah, I had this idea also, because an important element I said um, earlier that I was interested in creating these listening experiences, um, like for collective listening in a darkened theater. Um, but uh, the, the, oh, the important detail that I skipped out is, is that I, these pieces initially started as multi-channel compositions. And so um, since each space is configured differently, um, the idea was that I would, you know, know what space the piece is going to be performed in next and um, just recompose it for that space. Oh, that's great. That that links up with another kind of broad question that I wanted to ask, which was about your yeah your work across a really wide range of formats. So including like installation, interactive work, game platforms, even virtual environments, and sort of how they live under the umbrella um, radio opera. So um, I don't know if you want to pick up some of the some like some of the other interactive components that you're working on in, in some of these projects. Right, I mean, I think that's another influence that came from the San Francisco period of my uh -huh. life. Uh -huh. so I was performing, I was, when I used to play trumpet in a band called Ray's Vast Basement that um, was led by John Bernson. And so the stories, like it was all about, um, you know, this character, Ray McKelvey. So there's like a story um, and one of the albums, there was a series of cards that had these um, illustrations that told different kind of aspects of the story. Um, his wife um, is an actress. So like we would do these performances and speak easy, um, which is like, you know, appropriate for the for the narrative of the story and actors would come and do tableau as part of the story. So I became, I, I think through this influence, um, interested in how many ways can I tell the story or what are all the, how many ways can someone experience the same um, story? So, I mean, I can, I can talk about, I guess, what I'm currently wor working on. I mean, just kind of like, generally as I'm, I'm working on my, um, current radio opera, I'm thinking about, I've already mapped out like, like I guess the life, the expected life of what this composition is. So, you know, with this um, new work, which is called The Coding, it's um, like video concrete. Um, so introducing, you know, new elements of, um, working with images and animation in the same way that I work with um, sound materials and treating them similarly. But then thinking about, well, after, you know, this performance, which will be online, you know, what does it look like next? Well, I've been talking about, you know, how 
I'm interested in modular composition. So there'll be a second iteration of that with a second, you know, with another performance. And then I do, I'd like to do, um, you know, a version for 140 speakers, like, like for the cube. And then I like to um, do an installation version that people can walk in. And so um, I guess what I'm saying is at this point, um, I'm starting to think about all of the iterations and, you know, forms of the piece at an earlier stage than I have been um, in the past 10 years. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I know you've also started the radio opera workshop recently. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how that has come together and where you would like to see it go. So the radio opera workshop is an ensemble, which could be, um, you know, from solo to large ensemble. So it's, it's, it can telescope out um, mm -hmm. as needed. Um, based on the venue and opportunity, but it's basically an experiment in doing live radio opera um, since I've primarily been working in fixed media. And so for pieces like Invisible People or, you know, Swan or Destination Freedom, you can hear elements of ensemble um, and, you know, all of that source material, material was recorded um, in studio sessions over um, the period of well, three different years in the space of four years. Um, and I wanted to, I, I'm, I want to now work with live, you know, humans and interact. So the idea was in 2020, you know, in April, I was gonna premiere this live ensemble doing um, radio opera, but everyone knows how that story goes. Um, and so I'm still gonna premiere the ensemble, but that will be, um, April 2021 um, with the coding, which is the piece that I was just referring to. So um, it, it's still, um, I, I've had to rethink what live performance means, um, especially being mediated um, through, you know, live streaming. Um, and so this is, I think, also what influenced this idea about um, you know, finally exploring video concrete, um, I guess more sincerely. For one of the earlier versions of Invisible People, um, I mean, I did do some experiments with video and all kinds of things with lighting or, you know, playing trumpet off stage while the fixed media is happening. Um, and so um, I guess the radio opera workshop is just a, a way to explore all of these different um, possibilities for what radio opera can do um, and thinking about, you know, what are the affordances of radio opera? Um, Picking up your remarks on rethinking like live performance actually makes me think about some some of what you've written about hearing electroacoustic music live in certain settings and you have described a kind of critical listening strategy in like electroacoustic 
contexts that involve like intentionally listening from peripheral locations. So outside the speaker arrays and um, at the edges of designated concert space. And I'm wondering what that strategy has revealed to you and how have you used it in your work? Yeah, so there was a period of maybe two years where I went to um, multiple electroacoustic and experimental um, concerts, um, both in the US and Europe. And I seemed to upset a lot of house managers because they're like, you're gonna miss this performance because I would, I would stand outside of the ring or the circle or whatever the sacred um, listening space was um, you know, designated to be. And, um, you know, I, part of, sometimes I would explain why, but I mean, the, the reason was um, I'm interested in, yes, it is fun to hear something in a sweet spot. That's super. Um, but I'm, first of all, just think that a work should be, it should sound good from any location. Um, uh, the sweet spot is problematic because who's privileged to be in that sweet spot? Um, unless you're just gonna, you know, have an audience of one or, you know, three people clustered together in the middle of the space. Um, so I guess, I guess I, I was, I guess my points about the sweet spot are, um, I just have been adamantly rejecting the notion of it because it privileges, it's privileged listening for only a few people in a space. And in reality, if you are in a space, um, you know, not everyone's going to be in that same position. And so I think when I compose, I would like to think that regardless of where a person is um, seated in that space, um, that they're having, a, you know, a val I don't know if valid is the right word, but they're having, um, they're able to connect to um, the sonic experience in some way. Oh, that's great. I mean, I think that valid is absolutely the right, the right word. I mean, the, the kind of fetishization of the so-called like sweet spot is a way of like validating and invalidating people's listening experiences. So that seems really like to just to, to really nail it, I think. Um, I was wondering if you could, um, I don't know, sort of like, sort of in this vein, if you could talk a little bit about how you created the uh, conceptual framework and working method that you sometimes call um, narrative soundscape composition. And um, as, you, as you talk about that, maybe, also reflect on how like a piece like Destination Freedom um, like brings listeners into its uh, narrative space. Absolutely. Um, so of the two terms that I used to describe my work, radio opera is one and narrative soundscape composition is another. And sometimes I use the terms um, to describe the same works but each of the practices for me, you know, uh, comes from a different genealogy. And so you've already heard the entire, well, not the entire, you've heard a lot of the kind of background on um, radio opera. Um, narrative soundscape composition, I think, 
really came about when I was living in La Jolla, California. And um, as I've mentioned, I've, you know, I grew up in LA, I lived in New York, I lived in San Francisco, and La Jolla, California was the loudest place that I've ever lived. And I became really interested in um, sounds that penetrate the domestic space and their effects on, you know, mental and physical um, health. And especially like frequencies, low, lower frequencies. So, you know, there's, you know, the fighter planes or um, tourist helicopters, leaf blowers, lawnmowers, all these, these constant things that even if you shut out, shut your window, um, you know, sometimes you can feel, feel these sounds. And so I started um, thinking about soundscape composition from I guess the idea of composing an environment to learn about the environment. So composing like an artificial environment. Although, you know, I was also making field recordings from inside my domestic space um, that were capturing these out, outdoor sounds. Um, yeah, so I, I guess from this period of, you know, I started listening differently. I started becoming really sensitive to sounds, but I started, um, in my compositions, incorporating um, these low frequencies that could be felt in the body um, as part of the, I guess, storytelling. And also, um, you know, working more with field recordings, both from, you know, inside the domestic space and outside. Um, and so I, I guess I added narrative to soundscape composition because um, the World Soundscape Project and their early tenants, like they, they, and the principles, um, in some of the early writing, they talk about the social aspect that soundscape composition um, is designed to address. And I feel, I felt that it wasn't being addressed in the way that I wanted to see it addressed. So I started um, working with, um, I guess, historic, like, you know, contemporary social issues or issues that were contemporary, you know, when I was writing these pieces, which I also did with that piece Incubus at Columbia. Um, and also um, like historical events. So um, I was using narrative soundscape composition, both as a, as a way of um, connecting research on a, a subject to the practice itself. Um, but I guess more recently, I guess as other people have pointed out, um, in terms of my work that I call narrative soundscape composition, I mean, you can also apply like critical fabulation, like it's a sonic version of, of that. Um, but I guess I came to it at a from a different perspective. But yeah, I guess I, I'm rethinking my own practice constantly. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Um, I was really struck by how you, you know, you said that the, you know, the early self statements of the world soundscape project invoke social aspects, but you wanted to see that go in like a slightly different direction. So I would, I don't know, I would love to hear you say a little bit more about that and the, the, thinking the 
narrative soundscape work through the lens of critical fabulation is also really compelling. And so I would also love to hear you talk a little bit more about where that rethinking is taking you and what sort of questions or ideas it's opening up. Yeah, so like early narrative soundscape composition, I think maybe the one of the first pieces that I um, created has a, a ridiculously long title that I can't remember. Like it's like Atkins 422, um, which um, you heard at in the experimental theater at the Conrad Prebis uh, Music Center, and um, this that particular com uh, composition was like 17 minutes of field recordings made inside my domestic space. So. I mean, you could hear my neighbors, you could hear a party that was going on um, outside, but it was a very quiet piece. Um, and the next piece after was designed to kind of uh, take advantage of the constellation setting on the, on the Meyer system. And I expect it because from other um, shows I attended in that space, once someone was aware that the constellation system was on, people would cough or unwrap things or clap or do things to um, interact with the system. So I had this whole idea that I was going to present, you know, this Atkins 422 piece and then uh, follow it by this, I think, some kind of, you know, cage-like piece in where the audience was going to participate with the constellation, but it was dead quiet. And it was the first time I ever heard it that quiet in that space. And you and I had a conversation afterwards that I had primed the audience for a specific type of listening um, because the piece was like pretty long and pretty quiet, I guess, relative to my radio operas, which at that time had performance directions like to be played at an uncomfortable volume in a darkened space. So, um, I, I guess, you know, in these early exper experiments, I was like not just exploring a type of composition, but exploring how we listen. Um, probably the second piece that I, I use the term so both radio opera and narrative soundscape composition to um, is Swan, which is the predecessor to Destination Freedom. So, you know, in this one, I'm kind of taking, you know, Truax's idea of composing these artificial spaces. And so, you know, the first scene is in the um, cargo hold of a, sh of a ship transporting Africans to the Americas.
I mean, I think that's probably retrospectively, I guess, where the critical fabulation, um, if we're going to use that term to describe my own works, um, comes in because, you know, I'm reading things in history, but I mean, there's also, it's also not. So, you know, the semi um, fiction, semi nonfiction, it's, it's a, yeah, a blend of these. Um, in my works. And so um, I, I was just thinking about like two approaches to my work. Um, and so there, there's that one in which I'm rooting things in kind of a historical fiction, but then there's also the practice with something like invisible people, or again, it's predecessor what, 20 years before, or however many years before. Um, Incubus that I did at Columbia, where I'm using these sound bites and working with materials of things that people have actually said. So I, I, I think um, I, my more recent works, I guess, have combined these two practices of kind of rooting something um, in what has happened or what is happening. Um, and also, I guess, speculative fiction, um, but also grounding it in, you know, text from, you know, the Constitution or, um, you know, internet trolls are my favorite because I think um, even though they're in, I don't know, I, I, I think because, I, mean, I guess maybe I'm interested in hearing what, you know, cowards behind a, you know, an avatar are interested in saying, um, because it, it, it is a certain pulse of the people um, that I also include or frequently include in my work. I think, I, yeah, maybe as a, a, a question to like begin wrapping up, um, I, when you were working on Destination Freedom at a, like in maybe like three or four years ago, um, like through it, you, posed the question, um, and I'm quoting you here, um, you know, is there an African-American aesthetic of electroacoustic music? And if so, what does it sound like? And I wonder how you're thinking about this question right now. I guess what I hear as the African-American influences and what other people hear are different. And it's interesting to hear uh -huh. what other people recognize. Like I recall mm -hmm. playing Swan at Columbia and George Lewis is like, yeah, I can hear the blues in that. Um, uh, when I, um, I, th I think about my influences, um, when I first started getting into electroacoustic music, I listened to a lot of Charles Mingus, like pretty much nonstop. I guess that probably is one of the few like music, musicians, composers I was listening to, um, you know, that wasn't radio drama. Um, but what I guess I extract from Mingus is just all these lines of things that are happening simultaneously. It's like cacophony, but it's beautiful. And so I think I think about that when I'm adding all of these lines um, playing against one another, um, but they're also, they're playing together, but they're playing against one another. Um, and the other thing I, I think about that is an influence is, um, I'm interested in various processions from different African-American lives, um, like HBCU um, marching bands, 
like the processions, um, some black church processions with like the elders coming in. There's something about that rhythm that um, I'm interested in kind of incorporating into these radio dramas or radio operas, which probably nobody can hear <laughs> but me, but like, um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess on the surface, if I were to, to ask myself this question again, um, you know, like, is there an African-American aesthetic in my radio operas or my electroacoustic composition? Uh, I mean, I think probably the most obvious would be the subject matter, but um, I think also it's just like the way I'm thinking about how I organize the sounds. Um, that's, yeah, that's so great. Um, I was, I, I, as when I was getting ready for our conversation today, I listened to um, Let My Children Hear Music. And I, I wonder if maybe we, you wanna talk a little bit about your, your, your work for orchestra and maybe some of your projects um, um, in, the, yeah, in that vein as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the, the way I think about radio opera and narrative soundscape composition, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have, or I did define them as, you know, subsets of electroacoustic music. But now I think um, they influence my process when it comes to, um, you know, instrumental chamber, solo orchestra, orchestral music. So um, uh, the piece that you mentioned in the introduction, Atlantic Crossing for orchestra, I mean, I really use the same storyboard that I use for Swan and Destination Freedom. So um, they're kind of all takes on different things. Although for, for the orchestral version, you know, there's only, you know, one of the panels, one of the three panels um, that I focused on mostly. Um, yeah, I, I, I think just, especially recently, I just have been more um, excited to translate. Like I, I, I feel that, you know, over the past 10 years or since 94, whenever you want to start the clock on this, that I've um, refined this practice. And I think that this next, these next stages for me really come and, and just like really owning it and just taking, um, these ideas that may have started with electroacoustic music, but feel uncomfortable, um, you know, incorporating them into other types of music. Oh, great. It's, it's like, it's so great to have this, like have this big picture and to see how like expansive the concepts and methods of radio opera um, can be across your practice. Um, is there anything else that you would, um, that we haven't talked about that you'd like to um, like to make sure that we um, engage in our, in our conversation? I just like to. I had the opportunity to um, visit the CMC with Seth Cluett, I guess, two years ago, and it was really exciting to be back in that space. Um, partly because, like, the experience of being there has left like a lifetime. Uh, impression on me, but also to see like how my adult eyes would would 
you know, respond to that space. So, I mean, besides, you know, that the outside, you know, exterior like gentrification of, of the area, um, the space in itself, um, uh, it was just like really exciting to be in that space. Like, and I still vividly um, remember being there in the late or mid nineties, like, and, you know, sitting in the classroom and like Alice Shields is sitting there and, you know, having conversations with her. I don't remember what the conversations were, but I know um, I was always excited to see her and just, um, yeah, it was a great time with um, Brad Garden. I still thank him for, <laughs> for that experience and some of the other people who were there at the time. That's like, what a, what a perfect conclusion to this conversation. Um, uh, thank you so much, Yvette. Um, and, um, Thank you so much, listeners, to Unsung Stories. We've been uh, talking with Yvette Janine Jackson this evening. And just, again, thank you so much for, um, for, for this, this wonderful conversation. Great. It's been fun talking with you, especially since you've seen my work like develop over these past years. So. It's just an, it's just an absolute, like, it's just an absolute joy to, um, just be able to pick up all of these threads this, tonight. So again, thank you. Unsung Stories, Women at Columbia's Computer Music Center is a three-pronged event, a podcast series, a symposium, and a concert that focuses on the history of composers of marginalized identities, including women composers of color, who have undertaken significant creative work in electronic and computer music. The project's objectives are to spotlight the little-known work of many of the women who studied and worked at the CMC since 1951, to explore collectively how institutional networks and intersections of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and other identifications impacted and continue to impact the daily work and visibility of women composers, and to examine how systemic racism, as it intersects with gender and sexuality, can be combated in the field of electronic music, one that is still largely dominated by white men. For more information, please visit unsungstoriescmc.com. This podcast was produced by Zasha DeCastri, Eli Hasama, and Paolo Cosermelli Messina, with editing by David Adamsik. Our theme song was composed by DMR. You can learn more about her music and work at dmr.land. This project is made possible by the generous support of a public outreach grant from the Center for Science and Society at Columbia University.